This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Louis Armstrong singing Zippity Doo Da from the Disney movie Song of the South. And on this day in history in 1901, Walt Disney was born. A simple Missouri kid whose dreams were more than simple, they were magical and never dreamt before. But he didn't just dream, he pursued them, even when no one believed his dreams could become real. And almost no one ever did. And even when bankruptcy started, stared him straight in the eyes, he continued on until he won, until his dreams won, and we're glad he did. And I'm sure glad that he did too, because in the end, well, he touched all of our lives. The creator of Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Disneyland, and Walt Disney World. He won more Academy Awards than anyone in history, transformed cartoons into an art form with lifelike characters that audiences could relate to. He created the first cartoon with synchronized sound and the first full-color cartoon. We could just keep going on. For the entirety of our show today, we'll be celebrating Walt Disney's life on the day that he died and for our This Day in History segment brought to you by our sponsor, Hillsdale College. But we really needed more time than one show. Maybe next year, we'll do a whole week on the 50th anniversary of this man's death. Joining us now for the whole first hour is a man a little bit obsessed with Walt Disney. Studying the man is almost like a second career for our guest, Pat Williams. Pat is the author of over 80 books on leadership, including How to Be Like Walt, a book so inspiring that you simply can't put it down until you're done. I'll tell you to make a great Christmas gift for any of your loved ones. Pat is also the co-founder and senior vice president of the Orlando Magic. Pat, as always, thanks for joining us. Lee, great to talk to you. And uh, anytime I get to talk about Walt Disney, well, that's a, a good day for me. <laughs> hey, well, let's start at the beginning, Pat, because it's interesting. Uh, although Walt Disney wasn't alive for the founding of the Orlando Magic, without Walt, there wouldn't be a magic, would there? Probably not. I uh, moved down here to Orlando almost 30 years ago uh, with the uh, the goal, the dream of <clears throat> helping to uh, bring an expansion NBA basketball team to Orlando. And we were successful in that venture. Uh, we're now in our 27th season. But in addition to that basketball dream, I'll tell you what else happened to me, Lee. I got Disneyized. <laughs> which is very easy to do when you come to visit Orlando. And I got particularly fascinated uh, with the life of Walt Disney himself. I began to run into senior Disney executives here who had worked with Walt back in California, and I was always picking their brain, always asking them to tell me about Walt. And uh, that eventually led to a book called Go for the Magic, in which I wrote about Walt Disney's Five Secrets of Success, and then that led to the biggie, uh, How to Be Like Walt, in which I tracked down every single person I could find who knew Walt, wrote about him, or had worked with him back in uh, the day in California. And it was a fascinating project. And so I'm uh, completely absorbed in the life of Walt Disney. Well, what, that sounds like just a heck of a lot of fun also. Uh, but let me, let me get to this. One of Walt's greatest legacy is as the dreamer, which we'll cover more in the next segment. But for now, talk about the size of his dreams and how in the heck he came to them. 
Well, Lee, I will tell you this. They were huge. You know, he never dreamed small dreams. Uh, his background is very interesting. He uh, grew up originally in Chicago, uh, a rather dysfunctional family. His dad was very hard on him. Uh, they did not have a strong relationship, uh, you know, with Walt as a youngster. Uh, eighth grade education, that was the extent of Walt's formal education. And uh, eventually, you know, they moved to a farm in Missouri. Walt loved that period in his life. But throughout this, he, he was a drawer. He was an artist, not a world-class artist, but loved to draw, loved to create characters. And he was always thinking you know, about where this might lead. So as a youngster, still in his teens, uh, he was working for the Kansas City Star newspaper in the art department, and they fired him, said he was lacking in uh, creativity. His imagination wasn't good <laughs> enough. And, and so at that point, Walt vowed he would never work for anybody else again, and he would always be his own boss. And uh, I think that was a key point in his career, in his life, when he made that decision. Uh, he always wanted to be in control of what he was doing. You know, there was an in interesting quote I wanted to read to you, and tell me what you think it means. But Walt said, I must explore and experiment. I am never satisfied with my work. I resent the limits of my own imagination. Now, that's a good point, Lee, and that's why uh, movies were so frustrating to him. Uh, you know, he, w he would try and get them to be absolutely perfect, uh, but inevitably, something would pop up, and uh, just when the film was finished, he'd see something uh, that he didn't like or that could have been better, and he'd try and fix it, but in many cases, he couldn't. And, you know, once that movie is done, it's it's done. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. That's why when Disneyland came along much later, uh, Walt was so excited about that because... He could constantly be working on it, constantly be improving it. It was never finished. And if there was a flaw, Walt could always correct it and make it better. I think that's why he enjoyed Disneyland so much. Well, for the hour, Pat, we're going to be talking more about Walt Disney. I wanted to read one more quote that I just found so fascinating. We're going to go to a break and come back. This is Walt Disney. He said, if management likes my projects... I seriously question proceeding. If they disdain them totally, I proceed immediately. That may seem like the statement of someone who is just plain ornery, but in reality, it's an expression of Walt's creative genius. Walt believed that if everyone around him approved of his ideas, then he wasn't dreaming big enough dreams. Only when people opposed his ideas was he sure that the challenge was bold enough. This is Lee Habib, joined for the hour by Pat Williams who wrote, I think, the best book on Walt Disney, How to Be Like Walt. When we come back, more about this extraordinary life on this day in history brought to you by Hillsdale College, Walt Disney was born. Make no difference who you are. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to be talking about the great Walt Disney, who was born on this day in history in 1901. And we're joined by Pat Williams, who's written over 80 books on leadership, including How to Be Like Walt. I just read you something about how Walt dealt with naysayers. And it turns out, Pat, that the very first naysayer in his life may actually have been his dad. Talk about that. Oh, I think that's truly his dad was rough on him. You know, <clears throat> the fact that Walt loved to draw and do artwork, you know, I, I think Elias Disney couldn't comprehend that. And uh, at one point he said, why don't you play the violin? You can always be in a band. <laughs> and and so there was a struggle there. There was a tension there. Well, let's face it, Walt was a, I can just picture him as a young kid, uh, Lee, uh, probably very much a free spirit. Uh, probably not the easiest kid to parent, uh, but his dad and uh, and Walt had their problems, and uh, now eventually, uh, you know that was resolved. Years and years later, uh, Walt brought his parents out to Los Angeles after he was up and running, and you know it was a different relationship then. But as a young boy, it was uh, I would I would describe it as strained. That's, that's tragic, actually. But he did gain something uh, from his dad, as you pointed out, and that was his, his father Elias's Protestant work ethic. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, his dad was a worker. You know, he was involved in uh, many different acti- you know, many different forms of work. But he was a worker, and so was Walt. Let's not ever forget the fact that you know Walt just didn't come into the, this world with pixie dust. Uh, you know, scattered all around him and uh, had this free ride to all that he did. He was an incredible worker, uh, never never took time off, really. You know, he lived in that office and probably worked to a fault. Although, when you really study him, Lee, he was a great uh, husband and a great father. You know, he always took time for his two girls. Uh, he was a good husband to Lillian, and uh, he knew that he... Uh, Wanted to spend time and take time to be with his family. Uh, drove the drove the girls to school every morning, uh, so he was very conscientious in that regard. But the rest of the time, oh boy, he was deeply immersed in his work, always working, always thinking, always planning, always dreaming, always imagining. You know what could happen. And and earlier, Lee, you made the point that uh, if everybody opposed an idea, Walt was for it. Uh, and that was the case. You know, if, if people agreed with him, Walt said, ah, it's not a big enough dream. And so he would uh, let them know he was thinking about making a full-length animated cartoon, Snow White and the, and, and the Seven Dwarfs, unheard of. Cartoons were eight minutes at the longest and if he went eight minutes and ten seconds, probably the whole world was going to collapse. And and so he came up with a, a full-length cartoon. And then years later, along came Disneyland. And uh, Walt had the whole thing pictured in his mind. Nobody bought in. His, his brother Roy thought he was nuts. I mean, there was not enough money to do it. Uh, his team was was very much opposed. And Walt took that as a good sign. Yep, yep, he took it as a if good sign. If they're all sign. opposed, it's, it's going to work. <laughs> it's going to work. You know, one of the things he may have learned from his dad also is this ability to survive uh, failure and also to incur 
and take on risk and, and have an appetite for risk, Pat. And one of the most incredible things about Walt's life is how he kept daring over and over again, pushing himself until he went into bankruptcy or close to it as a young man. Uh, talk about Walt's failures, because as so many of us learn in life, we, we grow the most and learn the most when we, when we fail. Well, Walt said, uh, there was a wonderful quote, he said, I think it's important uh, for anybody to have one good failure early in their career. And uh, listen, Walt had his share of failures. Uh, he went bankrupt, as, as far as I can determine, late 12 times. Two nervous breakdowns. Many a setback. But the biggest setback occurred in 1927. He finally had come up with this delightful character, Oswald, the lucky rabbit. So he went to New York to check up on Oswald and see what was going on with his films and all. And he got the horrifying news that a New York huckster named Charles Mintz had pilfered Oswald on a legal technicality and had swiped all of Walt's key animators as well. So there is 27-year-old Walt with his new bride, Lillian. He gets this horrible news in New York. And, and what does one do? Well, he, he got on a train with his wife and headed back to Los Angeles. Well, Lillian later said, he, she, she said, Walt was so down, so dejected, he just lay there. He couldn't even sit up. Finally, about halfway across the country, Walt began to revive, and uh, he always had a thing for mice. So he sketched out a mouse. He was quite pleased with it, uh, already had a name for the mouse, Mortimer. Came over to Lillian's seat, showed him what he had done, showed her what he had done. Lillian was horrified. <laughs> Far too sissy a name, she said to Walt. So Walt went back to the drawing board while they were on the train, and when the train arrived at the L.A. train station, Walt had a new mouse, a new character, a new mouse with a new name. We've all heard of him. And years later, uh, Walt said, I hope we never lose sight of the fact that it all started with a mouse. And he also said, I never loved a woman as much as I loved that mouse. Uh, I would say, however, to Walt, I said, Walt, it didn't start with that mouse. It started with a word that you made up along the way. And, Lee, that word was stick-to-it-ivity. Stick-to-it-ivity. It's not in the dictionary, although it should be. But that's Disney ease for hanging in there, for persevering, for using tenacity. And when I study Walt, that's really the key to, to everything with him, uh, Lee. Uh, that doggedness, that determination, persistence. You know, he just wouldn't quit. He just kept he hanging in quit. there. He and, wouldn't uh, quit. Just kept kept battling. That's uh, I think that's the story of Walt. Pat, I want to play for you a clip from the PBS series American Experience about Walt Disney and that pal of his that you were just talking about, that mouse named Mickey. Walt Disney always talked about Mickey Mouse as being his alter ego. He would say that, you know, I'm closer to Mickey Mouse than I am to anyone else. Hey, Poodle! 
Mickey and Walt are talking to each other. Hey, Poodle, here she comes. So he's got to do Mickey's voice. Someone's got to do it. So, of course, Walt does it because it's him talking to himself. So, Mickey, how you feeling today? You know, I feel great. Do you know, it wasn't an easy day. You know, maybe tomorrow, who knows? You know, let's get into a little bit of trouble. You and me. That was Neil Gabler and also Ron Suskind, both two terrific writers, as you know, Pat. And uh, talk a little bit about that, that relationship and that creativity and the depths to which Mickey was, in some respects, a part of and an alter ego of Walt Disney. By the way, we learned this about Charles Schultz, too, Pat, that it turns out that, that uh, Linus wasn't his alter ego. It was Charlie Brown himself that was Charles Schultz's alter ego. And uh, speak to that, if you could. Well, Lee, I guess that's the, the story of animators, isn't it? They uh, actually become the characters that they're drawing or, or, or writing or filming, you know. And that was certainly the case with Walt. He had, he had Mickey's voice down, uh, created uh, different scenarios for Mickey, loved Mickey, uh, uh, more than any human being. He, he, I, I, now, I often wonder, did he love Mickey more than Lillian? Uh, that would be a good discussion. But uh, that mouse was uh, the centerpiece of his life. And I'll tell you what, Lee, I live right here in Orlando in the middle of Disney World, and uh, I often wonder, what a miracle. Way back, they create this little mouse, and uh, today... He owns the world. We had 62 million visitors to Orlando last year, and they all want to see Mickey Mouse. All because of a mouse. When we come back, more with Pat Williams, this remarkable story. And by the way, a uniquely American story, folks, as all these stories are on Our American Stories. When we come back, more with Pat Williams. On this day in history, the great Walt Disney was born in 1901. Celebrating the life of Walt Disney. Born in 1901 on this day in history. And we're joined by Pat Williams for the hour. Pat is the author of a great book, How to Be Like Walt. He's also the senior vice president and co-founder of the Orlando Magic. So he knows just a little bit about, well, Walt Disney. And in fact, uh, if anything, this may have been, Pat, the, the biggest influence on your life, it sounds to me, in terms of the amount of time you spent other than perhaps Jesus Christ, I don't think there's another person that's influenced you more. Am I right no, to that, say that? That's a, that's a great point. You know, obviously, if I, I've had influences in my life uh, from a, a men that I worked with or who uh, became mentors, but Walt has become a, a real mentor in my life. He's become an inspiration. Uh, he's become a motivator. 
you know, just through uh, talking to people who knew him, uh, reading extensively about him. And I, it's just, yes, he's become a huge part of my life. And Lee, I'll tell you, uh, one of the people that uh, really came alongside of me was Walt's daughter and uh, Diane Disney Miller. She became quite a hero as I was working on that book. She was very generous uh, with her time with me and then put me in touch with all of her children, Walt and Lillian's grandchildren. And I was able to speak to them, you know, in doing my research for, for that book, How to Be Like Walt. And then on the opening day of the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum, which Diane had overseen, in San Francisco, I was invited to go to the opener of that uh, museum, and boy, what a thrill that was! Uh, yeah, what an honor that's got to be! Thrill. What an honor! You bet. And I got to meet Diane and see her. Let me tell you this: she was a spitting image of her father. I mean, if you wanted to know what Walt looked like, just go look at <laughs> Diane. <laughs> that's great. And then I hey, was Pat, so I... so saddened a few years later. Uh, she had a fall, a bad fall, and and she died at age seventy nine. And uh, I'm still very sad about that. Well, Pat, I wanted to start off with another clip from uh, the PBS American Experience. And this one is about Walt's salesmanship. American Motors, builders of Nash automobiles, Kelvinator home appliances, and Hudson Motor Cars present Walt Disney's Disneyland. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Each week as you enter this timeless land, one of these many worlds will open to you. Here now to tell you about it is Walt Disney. Welcome. I guess you all know this little fella here. It's an old partnership. I think he was one of the great salesmen of our time because he never tried to sell something he didn't personally believe in. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. That's it, right here. Disneyland, seen from about 2,000 feet in the air and 10 months away. Pat, salesman is a word many people look down on. But you say that Walt Disney's life proves that we shouldn't. And I might add that few people are artists and salesmen. Talk about both of those things, if you could. Well, Lee, I think it's important to talk about the genius of Walt Disney in this regard. He had wonderful ideas. He was always thinking, always creating, always planning, you know. But he also, uh, and listen, and there are many people like that, not to his extent, but many people. But Walt always knew what the public would buy. That was part of his genius. So he, he would create, but in creating, he also had a sense, he had a feel for what the public would buy. Because he was a businessman as well. You bet. And, and, and uh, when he would create a new film or create Disneyland or whatever he was creating... Uh, equally of importance to him was, will the public pay for this? Will they buy it? You bet. And, and he had and a feel. He and had a feel where, for and the... that's where his salesman came in. Plus, just an, in, an instinct on what the public wanted. 
Yeah, and he had, he also had a great feel for the country and obviously a great love for his country, uh, as well. But not a cynic as, as far as his view of American values and what the American people valued, Pat. Well, Lee, there's no question about that. All you had to do was go to Disneyland and, you know, the Hall of Presidents and that wonderful, uh, speaking Mr. Lincoln. I think that goes back probably to his, Midwestern roots. Remember, he spent a good bit of time on a farm in Marceline, Missouri, which was really probably the highlight of his youth. And uh, he really got a sense of middle America, I think, uh, through that experience. You had a great quote in here. You talked about his salesmanship, and you said, a great salesman lives on repeat business, and the key to repeat business is trust. And the key to trust is integrity. Anybody can sell to one customer one time. A great salesman builds relationships of trust on a foundation of truth. And you also added that Imagineer Harriet Burns told you, Walt was a great salesman and his best sales technique was his absolute honesty. He didn't use glib talk or flashy sales methods. He simply sold his ideas with honesty and sincerity. People could tell that he said what he meant and meant what he said. They trusted him, and that trust relationship made him a great salesman. Talk about that, Pat. Uh, It's so beautifully said. Isn't that beautiful? You know, and uh, I think that's uh, a good challenge for any of us who are in the sales business, uh, that uh, we've got to be trustworthy. And, And I go back, way back, Lee, to my early days as a minor league baseball executive. I worked for a man in Spartanburg, South Carolina, Mr. Ari Littlejohn. He was the owner of the team. He used to say to me, there are many, many one-shot salesmen out there. Uh, they can come in and sell one time. But to come back a second time, that's the key uh, as to whether you're a good salesman. And, you know, the other kind of selling, Pat, and this is very important selling, is not only the external sale to the client or the customer, but it's the internal sale to your own team members, to your employees, to your executives. Talk about Walt's talent there when we come back on the other side of a break, Pat. I'm going to play a great clip. But talk about that other kind of selling to your own people. Well, if they're not enthused, Lee, if they're not uh, excited about what they're doing, uh, if they're not into it, uh, oh, I guess they can get the work done, but it's not going to be as it should be. Yeah, they're going to just be moping along. Walt had the Walt had the ability to get his people excited, enthusiastic, and it really triggered from his passion, his zeal. You know, they, they it was infectious. Uh, they caught it from Walt. Uh, yep. If they saw Walt all pumped up and really into it, well, that spread like wildfire fire across his organization. Well, one of Walt's greatest sales feats is selling Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to his animators. We're going to play a clip right now that we had promised, Pat. One evening in 1934, Walt sent his entire staff out for an early dinner, but told them to hurry back to the Hyperion soundstage for an important company meeting. The room was buzzing by the time Walt took the stage. Disney is lit on the soundstage. And he then proceeds to act out, alone, just him, a one-man show, the story of Snow White. 
What he did was to go through the whole movie as he saw it, acting out all of the parts, impersonating all of the characters, going through all the emotions, all the ups and downs, the queen, the princess, the, uh, the seven dwarves, even the animals. Walt's excitement was catching. We were just carried away, remembered one animator. I would have climbed a mountain full of wildcats to do everything I could to make Snow White. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Walt Disney for the hour. He was born on this day in history in 1901, and we're joined by Pat Williams. And when we come back, we'll have Pat comment on that remarkable clip. We'll be right back after these messages. you undertake becomes a piece of cake a lark, a spree it's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down the medicine go down this is Lee Habib and for the hour we're talking about the life of Walt Disney who was born on this day in history in 1901 and joining us for the hour Pat Williams who's written so many great books about leadership, and I believe wrote the best book I've read on Walt, titled How to Be Like Walt, because there's so much insight about so many aspects and dimensions of his life. Pat, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the fact that he was a sort of a servant-based manager, and he did a lot of managing by walking around. Uh, talk about those two things and how, well, how he managed folks and got the maximum performance out of them. Well, uh, I think that's a key to being a good leader, Lee. Uh, the ability to get away from your desk or a- out of your uh, your silo and uh, get down among the people. For example, uh, George Washington during the Revolutionary War, uh, eight years, Lee, he never left his troops. Yep. Uh, Walt, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., where was he? Well, he was out among the people. Well, that was Walt. He was uh, down among the animators. He would visit with them. He wouldn't overrule them. He, he would uh, not uh, be a, a pest to them, but he was. Uh, they knew he was there, uh, that he was interested, that he was checking on things. And then, of course, Lee, when, when Disneyland opened, oh, my goodness, uh, Walt was out among the, the crowds. He, he, he would generally wear a disguise of some sort so he wouldn't get mobbed. Uh, but he wanted to know what the public was thinking and what they were, how they were reacting. And Walt just loved to be out among the people and out among his own people. Uh, he inspired them. He uh, he got them pumped up. They uh, they loved his presence. Now, having said that, Walt was not uh, the easiest boss in the world, Lee. You know, he was very sparse with his with his praise. Uh, if he said uh, that'll work, <laughs> that was high praise from right, Walt. Right. Uh, he uh, he had his own style of leadership and ha- how to do things. But if he said uh, that'll work, oh, listen, uh, his his employees would hear that; they'd be thrilled. They that would keep him going for a year. Uh, so he, he had an interesting way of leading. But uh, you you have to say, at the end of the day, it was extraordinarily effective. You bet. It wasn't just the people he served either. 
uh, Pat. It was the art he served, and it required him to take a big dose of humility and make quite a lot of selfless decisions, didn't it? Oh, I think that's true. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any question about it. I think at the end of the day, you would describe Walt as a humble man. You know, I don't think he was stuck on himself. I don't think he, uh, you know, he listened to people. He wanted other people's ideas. But when he had a big one, uh, nothing was going to deter him. Uh, right. Even though even though people thought he was probably crazy. I, I love the Art Linkletter story. Art Linkletter was probably Walt's closest friend away from the studio. So one Saturday, uh, Walt said, Art, come with me. I want to show you something down here in Orange County. And so they drove down to this open field and citrus trees and swamp, marsh, bog land, uh, who knows. And they took a walk around, and, and, and Walt uh, showed exactly to Art Linkletter what he was working on and where everything would go here for Disneyland. Well, they walked back to the car, and Art Linkletter uh, was there with Walt, and Walt said, Art, you want to go in with me on the deal? And Art said, eh, I think I'll pass, Walt. Later, Art Linkletter said, every step back to the car that day cost me $3 million a step, he said. <laughs> and then later, uh, years later, uh, Walt, Walt came to him again and wanted to talk about a theme park, another uh, Disneyland in, in Florida. And asked Walt, uh, Art's opinion, and Art said, oh, Walt, that'll never work. Just like there's one Grand Canyon, you know, there's only one Disneyland. Right. And, and uh, Art later said, uh, from that point on, uh, Walt just stopped asking me about my opinions. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. You know, I wanted to read something from your book, getting back to that humility part. Uh, during 1925, Walt fired himself as an animator. Quote, I was never happy with anything I ever did as an artist, he once reflected. From then on, Walt would serve as producer, director, coach, cheerleader, head storyteller. But as you write in your book, he would never animate another frame of film. Fascinating that one of the great animators in history fired himself from the animation department. Yeah, because he knew, he knew that wasn't his greatest strength. Uh, he knew he had a team of animators who were absolutely the very best in their profession. And Walt was Walt could draw, and he was a a decent animator, but not at that level. And so he concentrated totally on uh, the other things. And and at that point, that company was growing, Lee, and uh, he didn't have time to just sit there, you know, doing animation. He had much bigger things that he had to contend with and worry about. Bigger dreams to deal with. You you also talked in your book, Pat about his service to art sometimes costing him dearly in the profit department and how Roy was always constantly worried about that. I want to read again from your book. Roy worried about the cost of Walt's quest for excellence. In 1930, the cost of one cartoon was $5,400. By 1931, it more than doubled to $13,500. In 1932, Technicolor raised the price to around $23,000, $3,500 more than the advance from United Artists. Disney's costs were so high that it took two years for a cartoon to show a profit. Talk about the brothers. You had one who seemed to be the ledger guy, yet another guy who was the dreamer. How did that work out? Oh, Lee, I think the, uh, the Walt and Roy Disney story is fascinating unto itself. The, the two brothers, uh, Roy was the older brother, 
Uh, and the, you're right, Lee. Uh, Walt was the uh, creator. He was the imagination guy. Uh, he was worried. He concentrated on all of the product. Uh, Roy somehow it had to be paid for, and Roy was the businessman, and he was the one that had to finance Walt's dream. Sometimes they really got into it, and had some major disagreements. But in, in many other cases, uh, Roy would come to the rescue and, and come up with a plan where his younger brother's dreams could be paid for. But it is fascinating the way the two of them work together. Uh, without Roy, uh, we probably wouldn't know much about Walt Disney today. You bet. It's kind, of like, the- it's kind of like Hewlett and Packard, right? You know, a, a business team. It's... Uh, Probably like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Yep. It's uh, it's like Rich DeVos and Jay Van Andel with Amway. Uh, it's like uh, Frank Wells and Michael Eisner later at Disney. Those those remarkable teams, two man teams that uh, made things happen. Yeah, and no, we we're close to and are very grateful for Bernie Marcus's support. And he would tell you that that team of he and Arthur Blank that he couldn't have done what he could have done building Home Depot uh, without Arthur and also without uh, Ken Langone, who ended up running around and getting their, their dreams financed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk about Walt Disney uh, and his desire to serve God and especially God's young children. Talk about this dimension of Walt Disney's life. I don't hear much about this, Pat. Well, he grew up in a church going home. You know, he's... Uh... His mother and dad were both active in the church, and he uh, he grew up in that world. I think he knew the Lord, uh, Lee. Uh, he didn't talk about it, and I'm not sure that he was a a, a consistent churchgoer. But I think uh, you know he he knew that uh, God played a big role in what he was doing, and uh, it was all part of, I guess, maybe of his. American heritage, but I think there was a, a, a definitely a spiritual part of his life. To close the hour, Pat, Walt Disney shares the best advice he could ever give to young artists, and really, well, to all of us. The best advice I have ever given to students who have studied under me has been just this. Educate yourself. Do not let me educate you. I'm reading from Robert Henry in response to a question often asked in letters from art students. However they put it, it always boils down to this. Students become confused by honest admiration for one school of painting mixed with recognition of the success and popularity of another style along with advice to follow a still different approach. Frequently a student will ask which one he should imitate. Robert Henry would advise don't imitate anyone. He says, one of the great difficulties of an art student is to decide between his own natural impressions and what he thinks should be his impressions. And at another page, go forward with what you have to say, expressing things as you see them. Time after time in his art spirit, Henry says, be yourself. Pat, 30 seconds. We're closing out the hour right now. Final thoughts about Walt Disney and what you just heard. Great advice, isn't it? Be yourself. You can't be anybody else. God made each one of us uniquely. Uh, We're uh, just like snowflakes. There are no two that are the same. 
and that's good advice to all of us and, and great advice for young people. Don't, uh, don't be imitating others. You're a unique being. Uh, be, be yourself and carve your own path. And do your own thing. Be your own self. Boy, that's solid advice from Walden. What a great way to end our hour together, Lee. You bet. Pat, thank you so much for joining us, as always. The author of How to Be Like Walt, Senior Vice President of the Orlando Magic. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Walt Disney. What a life it was, born on this day in history in 1901. is our American stories. And we're about to tell you a story about a dictator and a dissident. The story of Fidel Castro told through the story of a man he imprisoned. And before we do that, I wanted to just share a touch from Umberto Fontova's piece about Fidel Castro's death just to give you a context of the story we're about to tell you. Fidel Castro jailed and tortured political prisoners at a higher rate than Stalin during the Great Terror. He murdered more Cubans in the first three years in power than Hitler murdered Germans during his first six. Castro shattered through mass executions, mass jailings, mass larceny and exile, virtually every family on the island of Cuba. Many opponents of the regime qualify as the longest-suffering political prisoners in modern history, having suffered prison camps, forced labor, and torture chambers for a period three times as long in Fidel Castro's gulag as Alexander Solzhenitsyn suffered in Stalin's. And by the way, Solzhenitsyn's remarkable Harvard speech you can get on our This Day in Histories. It's one of the great speeches ever delivered in history on United States soil. Fidel Castro also came closest of anyone in history to starting a worldwide nuclear war. In the above process, Castro converted a highly civilized nation with a higher standard of living than much of Europe and swamped with immigrants into a slum ravaged by tropical diseases and with the highest suicide rate in the entire Western Hemisphere. Over 20 times as many people have died trying to escape Castro's Cuba as died trying to escape East Germany. And yet, prior to Castroism, Cuba received more immigrants per capita than almost any nation on Earth. More than the U.S. did, including the Ellis Island years per capita. And so, with that as a background, and Fidel Castro's recent death, we bring you a column, and it's one of the rare times I'll do a reading, uh, but it's a story that I think you'll enjoy, if such things are possible to enjoy. The Dictator and the Dissident, the story of Fidel Castro and Armando Valladares. It's a part of the Fidel Castro story 
Michael Moore won't tell or doesn't know. It's a story you certainly didn't hear as the media endlessly opined about Castro's complicated legacy, but it reveals so much more about the dictator than any other story could tell. The year was 1959. Castro, a young revolutionary, had seized Cuba's imagination with talk of democracy and a new vision for its people. It didn't take long, however, for one follower to discover Castro's true nature and for Castro to run up against the limits of his own earthly power. Armando Valladares may not have been the first man to challenge the Cuban dictator, but he eventually became the best known. By his own account, the young Valladares was an early supporter of Castro's revolution, taking a job in the office of the Ministry of Communications for the Revolutionary Government, where he worked as a postal clerk. But things changed when he was asked to put a communist slogan on his desk. It comprised of three simple words. I'm with Fidel. Amadaro Valladares refused. A young artist and poet who also happened to be a Christian, Valladares understood the meaning of the request. What he did not know and could not know was just how far his own government would go to bend his will. Soon after his refusal to comply, Valladares was arrested by political police at his parents' home. Faced with trump-up charges of terrorism, a favorite tactic of the Castro regime for silencing dissent, he was given a 30-year sentence. Valladares would spend time in different prisons for the next 22 years. The first, La Cabana, forged some of his very worst memories. Quote, Each night, the firing squad executed scores of men in its trenches, he told the Beckett Fund, which last year honored him with its Canterbury Prize, given annually to a person who embodies an unfailing commitment to religious freedom. Quote, We could hear each phase of the executions, and during this time, these young men, patriots, would die shouting, Long live Christ, the King, down with communism. And then you would hear the gunshots. Every night there were shootings. Every night, every night, every night. Years passed, and the communists fixated on enrolling prisoners in re-education programs. Valladares, still in his early sentence, was offered the chance at, quote, political rehabilitation. But again, he refused to comply. He was sent then to an even more brutal prison, and the government ramped up its efforts to break his spirit. Again, quoting Valadaris, I spent eight years locked in a blackout cell without sunlight or even artificial light. I never left. I was stuck in that cell, ten feet long, four feet wide, with a hole in the corner to take care of my bodily needs. No running water. Naked. Eight years. All of the torture, all of the violations of human rights, he said, had one goal. Break him, break his resistance, and make him accept political rehabilitation. That, he said, was their only objective. And when we come back, this showdown between the dictator and the dissident, which you won't believe the ending, this remarkable story of individual conscience, and its inability to be suppressed by even the greatest 
and one of the world's most feared leaders. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Fidel Castro understood through one man's struggle. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue the story, The Dictator and the Dissident, the story of Fidel Castro and Armando Valladares. I wrote this for the National Review. It's posted there. You can take a read, send it to friends. We pick up after having learned that Valladares had spent eight years in solitary, and I mean straight solitary. After nearly a decade, prison officials adjusted their terms once again. If Armando would simply sign a document renouncing his beliefs, he could return to his family. The choice was simple. To Valladares, physical freedom or spiritual liberty. Quote, For many people, it wasn't practical to resist. Better to sign the paper and just leave, Valladares said. But for me, signing that paper would have been spiritual suicide. I couldn't do it. So how did Valladares endure? How did his faith, his spirit, manage itself during these years alone in prison? Quote, In the beginning I embraced God, perhaps for fear of losing my life, since I was in danger of being executed. He told the National Association of Evangelicals in 1983, but hearing those men proclaim their love for Christ just prior to their executions moved him in ways he could never have imagined. Again, quoting from him in this terrific speech, I realized then that Christ could be of help to me, not merely by saving my life, but also giving my life and my death, if that was the case, an ethical sense that would dignify all of us. I believe that it was at that particular moment and not before when Christianity, besides being a religious faith, became a way of life that in my own circumstances resulted in resistance. Resisting torture, resisting confinement, resisting hunger, and even resisting the constant temptation to join that political rehabilitation and indoctrination program that would have ended my predicament. The battle lines were drawn for Valadaris. The material life versus the spiritual life. Castro and his earthly ambitions of a utopian dictatorship versus Jesus Christ and his promise of everlasting life for those who follow him. 
And by the way, when you study Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, the abolition movement, you find this recurring theme in Christianity. Bonhoeffer, heroism beyond belief, done because of human faith in God. Back to the story. Castro fought harder, desperate now to strip Valadares of his most valuable possession, his sense of decency. But once again, Valadares' faith proved up to the task. Quote, To be Christian, he said, under those circumstances meant that I could not hate my tormentors. It meant to maintain the belief that the suffering was meaningful because if man gives up his moral and religious values, or if he allows himself to be carried by a desire to hate or for revenge, his very existence loses all meaning. Ayodaros noted often that he was not alone in his spiritual battle with Castro. His fellow Christians always showed him the way. Again, quoting him from this speech to the National Evangelical Association. I saw dozens of Christians suffering and dying, committed like myself to maintaining their dignity and their richness of spirit beyond misery and beyond pain. I remember with emotion Gerardo Gonzalez, a Protestant preacher, who knew by heart the whole biblical passages and who would copy them, share them with his brothers in belief in prison. I cannot forget this man whom all of us called brother in faith. He interposed himself before a burst of machine gun fire to save other prisoners who were beaten in what is known now as the massacre of Boniata Prison. Gerardo repeated before dying the very words said by Christ himself on the cross. Quote, Forgive them, brothers, and Father, for they know not what they do. And all of us, when the blood had dried, struggled with our own conscience to attain something so difficult, so beautiful, the ability to forgive our enemies. Valladaris' God, too, showed him the way and the light. Again, quoting him from this speech, There are no impossibilities for those who love and seek God. The more ferocious the hate of my jailers, the more my heart would fill with love and a faith that gave me strength to support everything, but not with the conformist or masochistic attitude, rather filled with joy, internal peace, and freedom, because Christ walked with me in my cell. While in prison, Valadaris began to write poetry, denouncing his oppressors. Without paper or pen, he wrote on cigarette papers and onion skins, using his own blood as ink. His wife, whom he met in prison, smuggled those poems to the outside world, and they became an international bestseller. From My Wheelchair was the book of poems released in 1977. Quote, there is nothing dictators fear more than artists, Valadaris told that evangelical association, but especially poets. In one particular poem, Life Was Not Enough, dedicated to Pedro, Pedro Luis Boitel, whom he called an unforgettable brother, he expanded on this thought. Life was not enough for you in that torture chamber. But there were rifle butts and boots to spare, buckets of urine and excrement thrown in your face. They could not forgive you your labors of light and words 
They feared your smile, the eloquence of your hands. They feared the fertility of your ideas and your manner of being silent. They feared your life, Pedro. And so they murdered you. Today, Valadares paints rather than writes poems. His pictures are not scenes of torture and darkness, though, but vibrant landscapes that depict his soul, the refuge where he survived Castro's war on his body, Castro's war on his conscience. Castro is dead, and there will be countless biographies dedicated to burnishing his legacy. But the best way to understand Castro's life is to appreciate Valadares's. Valadares's story may never be required reading in Cuban schools, but it must be in every American school. Call the story The Dictator and the Dissident. It's a hell of a yarn. And it is. When we come back, we'll read one more poem from Valladares, and we're going to play a clip from a remarkable speech he gave at the Beckett Fund about individual conscience, freedom of thought, and the spiritual life. It's a bit more about some statistics on Castro and Cuba. According to scholars and researchers at the Cuba Archive, Castro regime's total death toll from torture, prison beatings, firing squads, Machine gunning of escapees and drownings approached 100,000. All of this confirmed, by the way, by Amnesty International, a pretty important group when it comes to human rights. Cuba's population in 1960 was 6.4 million. According to the same human rights groups and to Freedom House, 500,000 Cubans, young, old, male, and female, have passed through Castro's prison and forced labor camps. This puts Fidel Castro's political incarceration rate right up there with his hero, Joseph Stalin. Again, things you need to know about Castro, things you're not hearing, and most importantly, when we come back, the voice of Valladares. And by the way, what a movie. It would play like a Cuban Braveheart. And again, more poetry from Armando Valladares as well. The life of Fidel Castro. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. And the life of Fidel Castro is understood through one dissident. Armando Valladares. And before we read you one of his poems, and one that the Beckett Fund, a terrific religious liberty organization, shared with us called A Minute of Salt, which Valladares dedicated to all of those Cubans who perished in the ocean trying to escape their homeland. That dark passage. And just some facts before I read it from the Beckett Fund. In 1960, now imagine this, picture this in your head. Cuba had 7 million people. 1.2 million current Cuban exiles live in this country. That means that between 15 and 20% of the people of Cuba fled and risked death. By the way, the only time you see percentages reaching that ratio is the Great Potato Famine of Ireland, where people had a very stark choice. Move or die. Move or starve to death. And by the way, so many of those Cubans moored themselves in two particular parts of the country. Miami and a town in northern New Jersey that is the town my mother and father grew up in. And Cuban exiles took it over. West New York, New Jersey. And the surrounding areas where some hundred to 125,000 Cubans live now. And I learned about so many of these stories spending time amongst the folks there, playing basketball, sitting at shops, eating lunches. So here's the poem he wrote to those people who died. A Minute of Salt, it's called. To the thousands of men, women, and children who have perished in the sea trying to flee communism, a minute of salt for the silence of those who could not return to dust. Jehovah surely forgot about the waters, about those who died in the beating wave, their mouths filled with algae, their eyes devoured by the fish, about those who became anchors of swollen flesh or modern Jonahs quartered in the bellies of sharks. A minute of salt for the silence of those who dissolved unnamed and unremembered, those who sank while searching for the light and the word. Those who were swept away by lead while on their rafts dreaming of freedom. Those who have neither tombstones nor tombs nor crosses. Those who lie I know not where. Because there are no tombs in the sea. Again, these poems smuggled out of a prison, became an international sensation, and by the way, Castro is now in a bind. What does he do with this now world-famous poet? By the way, the Russians had the same problem with Solzhenitsyn. So many people would ask me, why didn't they just kill him? They couldn't now. And plus, as you can imagine, Castro wanted his soul. And if he killed him, Bayadaros would have won. And so Valladares understood that the dictator's pride was also his, in the end, Achilles' heel. So let's hear from Armando Valladares 
and his talk to the Beckett Fund and to Americans and to citizens worldwide about governments and their ability to censor, their ability to use force to get one to think or not think what they want to think. Let's take a listen. A muchos de ustedes, especialmente a los jóvenes, les parecerá que procedo de otra época o de un lugar remoto. For many of you, particularly for you young people, it may seem that I come from a faraway land from a long, long time ago. Amigos jóvenes, puede que nunca sufran la experiencia de ser llevados a punta de pistola como me ocurrió a mí por mantenerme fiel a mi conciencia. Young friends, you may never be taken away at gunpoint as I was for staying true to your conscience. Pero hay otras, pero hay muchas maneras de verse silenciado en sus escuelas, en sus universidades, en sus centros de trabajo. But there are many other ways to take you away and to imprison your body and your mind. There are many ways you can be silenced in your schools, your universities, your workplace. Les advierto que igual que existe una pequeña distancia entre Estados Unidos y Cuba, hay una distancia muy pequeña entre la democracia y una dictadura donde el gobierno decide lo que creemos y lo que hacemos. I warn you, just as there's a very short distance between the United States and Cuba, there's a very short distance between a democracy and a dictatorship where the government tells you what you do, what do you think, and how to live. Y a veces la libertad no es arrebatada a punta de pistola, sino mediante un pedazo de papel cada vez una ley aparentemente insignificante cada vez, un silenciamiento cada vez. And sometimes your freedom is not taken away at gunpoint, but instead it is done one piece of paper at a time, what seemingly meaningless rule at a time, one small silencing at a time. Tengan cuidado, amigos jóvenes. Nunca cedan. Nunca permitan que el gobierno o cualquier otra persona o entidad les diga lo que pueden o no pueden creer, lo que pueden o no pueden decir, o lo que sea que sus propias conciencias les ordenen hacer. Never allow the government or anyone else to tell you what you can and cannot believe, what you can and cannot say, or what your conscience is telling you to do or not to do. Un país que no es perfecto, pero que nos permite vivir en una sociedad donde cada cual puede tener una opinión diferente a la de otra persona y a la del gobierno. Our country is not perfect, but nevertheless, it still allows us to live in a society where we can hold a different view from each other and a different view from the government. Algo que no solamente se tolera en una democracia, sino que se define como un derecho que debe protegerse por la ley. This is not something that is merely tolerated in our society, but instead is a right that is protected by our own laws. And again, I think the telling line there in that reading, by the way, that translation was by the Beckett Fund's executive director, Christina Arriaga. And she's just terrific. 
And sometimes your freedom is not taken away at gunpoint, but instead it is done one piece of paper at a time, one seemingly meaningless rule at a time, one small silencing at a time. So well said. And we'll leave with one last poem. And Faith picked this one out. It's called Heroic. Pens, pencils, ink, because they don't want me to write and they've sunk me here in this punishment cell, but they aren't going to drown my rebellion that way. They've taken everything from me, or almost everything. I still have my smile. The proud sense that I'm a free man, an eternally flowering garden in my soul. They've taken everything from me, pens, pencils, but I still have life's ink, my own blood, and I'm still writing poems with that. Fidel Castro, Armando Valladares. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and that's right, you heard it. You heard her. It's time for our roundup of Judge Judy. And we watch it so you don't have to. It's one of the great shows in American history, and it's still on. It's on an hour every day. That's baloney. No, it's true. You just don't watch it. I do. Anytime I get a chance. Four to five o'clock in Memphis, Judge Judy's on for an hour. Anything else, Judge? Just do me a favor. Step yourself outside. You're irritating me. It's my courtroom. And so, Greg, what do we got this week? What do we got from Judge Judy? Um, Well, this is the case of the moronic, foolish, marginal mother. And those are Judge Judy's words. So we're kind of knowing what we're getting into here. Yeah, I think we do. Jesse, let's let's take a listen. This is Judge Judy. David Johnson is suing his ex-wife, Kathleen Kreftmeyer, for the cost of a paternity test and lost wages. David says Kathleen told his 11-year-old daughter that he was not her biological father. Quiet in the courtroom. All rise. I can't wait to hear the details of this case. Mr. Johnson, you and the defendant had been married. Yes. You have two children together, and you were divorced for the last 10 years. Yes, ma'am. The children are 11 and 15. Yes, ma'am. So that when you divorced, your youngest daughter was a year old. Right. And your oldest was five. Yes, ma'am. Your complaint is that your former wife insisted upon a paternity test after all this time, questioning whether the 11-year-old, who has been your daughter since birth, was your biological child. Is your claim that you had an agreement with her that if the test proved that you were the child's father, that she would pay for the test. That's correct, Your Honor. The defendant, put your hand down. The defendant 
I'm going to get to in a minute, says that it was your present wife's idea to have this paternity test. She just was accommodating. You have a copy of your judgment of divorce? I don't, Your Honor. Do you have a copy of your judgment of divorce? I'd like to see it, please. You filed for divorce, is that right? Yes, I did. You were the plaintiff. The grounds were irreconcilable differences. Yes. Is that right? Yes. When you filed the complaint for irreconcilable differences, you listed two children. Is that right? Yes. Two girls? Yes. You asked for child support for both girls, correct? Yes. yes. Good. Now, if you sense a certain harshness in my tone, it's because unless I was reading incorrectly in your answer, you say that five years ago, when your daughter was six years old, you had a talk with her. And you told her that there was a chance that he wasn't her father. Yes. And you did that because I don't believe in keeping secrets from my kids. Yes. You're a moron. You are a moron. I eat morons like you up for breakfast. <laughs> oh, she does. She does. And by the way, this is why people love Judge Judy. I think she says the things that 90% of America is thinking. And she just says it. And by the way, for those who don't know how Judge Judy came to be known, 60 Minutes many years ago, did a 15-minute piece of one of their long segments on Judge Judy's family courtroom, which, by the way, for those of you who live in the New York area, was notoriously entertaining, such that it was always filled to capacity. And she entertained the courtroom, she dispersed justice, and 60 Minutes did a piece. Then they did another piece a year later, 30 Minutes. And from that came a hit book and, of course, this remarkable show. Yeah, that's right. Hey, look, can I can I plug you without a okay. Little, okay? Judge Judy is not done though with this case. Take a listen. You are an example of why people should have to take tests before they're allowed to have children. Why in the world would you tell a six-year-old child that somebody who she believed was her father, who it turns out is her father, might not be her father? Because there was that chance. He knew his mom. Don't knew tell me what he knew. knew. I'm not asking you what he knew. I'm not asking you what his mother knew. I'm asking you why you would tell that to a six-year-old child. David never had really anything to do with them kids. He was out of their life. It wasn't like she knew him as the only father ever. Yeah. Just a second. Who are you? Boyfriend. Do you work? Yes. What do you do for an alleged living? I'm construction. Cross your hands. You work for your father? Yes, I do. Move over there. Are you paid in check or cash? Cash. How do I know that? How did I know to ask such a good question? Hmm? How did I know that? I don't know, Your Honor. <laughs> What's your social security number? And six. When was the last time you filed tax returns? A couple years back. Mm -hmm. How did I know to ask that question? You think that I'm psychic? You think that I have a crystal ball back there? No. How many children do you have? I don't have any. Sit down. Don't make any. Not with her. Yes, ma'am. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am. Something's wrong with her. Big time. Much smarter than you are. Oh. On your best day, you're not as smart as I am on my worst day. No, no. And by the way, again, this is why Judge Judy's amazing. I mean, she just, she reads people as if she'd grown up, well, in the street corners of New York City where there were three-card Monte artists and con artists everywhere. She just sniffs them out. Let's keep going. Before you have a discussion with a child and tell a six-year-old child that there is a chance that she's a... 
You have a paternity test. If you have a question, then you know. You don't tell her first because you feel as if you have to get it off your chest that you were messing around. He was messing around first, Your Honor. Who cares? He didn't become pregnant. As far as I know, that's not a possibility yet. Fool. And she's really ticked. That's the other thing we love about it. She's not, she's not acting here. It's righteous indignation. Judge Judy turns to the father. Mr. Johnson, I don't understand why your children live with her. I don't get that. Maybe she's the better parent. Maybe between the two of you, as marginal a human being as she is, maybe she's more capable of raising them. That would be very sad for your children. Now, tell me your version of the events surrounding this paternity test. Your Honor, I'm a truck driver. Um, I was on my way back from Utah. I uh, got a phone call from my mother saying that we had a little problem. Step up, please. Your last name is? Stenkamp. Why did you call your son and when? I believe it was on the 25th of August. It was their week to have the girls. And Amanda... Whose week to have the girls? Uh, David and his wife's. It's split custody, the state of Idaho. So uh, me and his wife went and picked the girls up at the police station from Kathy and her boyfriend. And Amanda just didn't seem to be right. And so during dinner, she was helping cook. And I said, you know, is something wrong Grandma can help you with? Yes. Mama took me to see some man named Jay and said that it was my dad and that David was not my dad and that she was going to have a paternity test done, take away my dad David's rights, and whoever this guy is over here was going to adopt her as Mr. his. Mr. Genius over here? Yes. Was Mr. Never Files tax her. returns paid in cash? And, and I said, Amanda, you are our child. So this, clearly, this test put her mind at rest. Yes, ma'am. I assumed that somebody made her aware of the test results. Yes, Who did? ma'am. He I did. did. And Judge Judy turns right on back to the mother. All I know is, madam, you are one of the most marginal people that I've come across in a long time, and you haven't even said two words. You're going to pay for this paternity test, and I'm going to tell you why. Because you created the situation that placed doubt in the mind of an 11-year-old child without having proof positive first, and for no reason. Because I'm sure this person, Jay, that you took her to see was a bum. She has never met him. How did she know his name? I have told her his name, but she has never seen him ever. What difference does it make? What context did you tell her his name? I that he may be her father? Yes. You're a moron! And you still don't even get it. You still don't get it. Does she work? No, ma'am. She doesn't work? No, ma'am. You I pay child disabled. support? I, we have split custody. Neither one of us pay child support. How much was the paternity test? The receipt here for $275. And how much money did you lose by not going to work that day? I lost uh, $560. It, it was a load. I drive truck. I don't care what it was. $560. That's what you lost. Is that yes, correct? Correct. What? Were you going to tell me that you do work? I just got my SSI. Would I you just do, quit would you, Walmart. Would you answer my question? Are you going to tell me that you do work? Not right now. I do not. I am disabled. You have any problem with her performing her household duties, sir? Once in a while, yes. Doesn't inhibit you from being her boyfriend, right? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $835. Step out. Parties are excused. And by the way, when she finds out these people get SSI and they're in their 30s, which means they're going to get paid by us the rest of her life. 
This really sends her off the rails. And by the way, I'm just hoping some government official arrests these people because she's clearly able-bodied. She's a scam artist. She got another guy not paying taxes, working off the books. And this is why people love Judge Judy. And by the way, you'd think that she's a Republican listening to this. She's a Democrat. She's just outraged at government stupidity. And she's really outraged at absolute inane behavior by human beings and just deeply immoral behavior by human beings. And it's damn entertaining. We got any uh, good ones on the hopper, Greg? Not yet. Not yet. No. Huh? It's an untenable situation for somebody to have to live with. Hey, listen. But, but it, it, there's something I want to I want to bring out here yep, with yep. this thing. Okay. <laughs> and and that's this whole because everybody what? probably is looking at this woman and saying she's awful. But I think there's a universal kind of thing happening here, and that is this kind of parent bashing that happens among married and divorced people. And in itself, it's it's child abuse, and people really need to make sure that they're not bashing. Their, their partner or their former partner in front of their kids. Yeah. Good. Yeah, good. And that's why she good. called him a moron, by the way. That's why she called her a moron. And she is a moron. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We love Judge Judy, and we love bringing Judge Judy to you. And thanks, Jesse, for working the soundboard, as always. Yeah. Listen to me. Just answer this question. Not only are you not a very nice person, you're also a slob.